So I'm going to be reading 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19 this morning. So if you could turn in your Bibles or follow along with me. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. All right. Thank you, Keith. You can have a seat. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter 4. Love, okay, love to see the choir back. Love to see the choir back. Love to see the young faces in the choir. Love to see the old faces too. Not, not, this is not a slam on the old faces. Love to see the new faces. Okay, can I, can I just tell you, I want, I want our church to be the weirdos in town. I think we already are the weirdos, but I like it when we're the weirdos. Like, pastors and churches can get caught up in movements and trends that are like, hey, we gotta make, we gotta make the building look a certain way and we gotta sing certain songs and we gotta, we gotta do this and we gotta do that to be cool to the culture. And, and I just want us to be, hey, we're the Bible nerds. You know what? We got a choir. Yeah, we got a choir. Look, there's teenagers in our choir. Because they think it's cool because they're Bible nerds too. <laughs> anyway. Listen, I had to fill some time there because uh, uh, I was going to use a football illustration to open up today's message, but yesterday, uh, uh, some sort of a duck beat a nut, and so I can't talk about it anymore. In fact, I just want to say how proud I am for, uh, of all of you who are uh, certain fans of a certain team because I checked the Facebook prayer page. We, our church has a private Facebook group that we pray for each other, and I checked that, and nobody, nobody posted, you know, pray for Ryan Day you know, that he might find employment somewhere. <laughs> Nobody posted that. I'm very proud of you for doing that. Um, but uh, so I, I don't want to talk about football today because, um, because I, don't, I don't think that would be edifying. But, you know, this is a sermon on suffering. So <laughs> maybe there's a tie-in to that a little bit. There's something about us as human. There's something about us as human beings that um, that is just it, it's it's good when we understand. <clears throat> it's good when we understand what we're about to get ourselves into. It's good to understand what's coming at us in life. In some ways, our parents prepare us for that. Maybe school prepares us a little bit for that. But when life gets hard, sometimes it's when things come at us that we had no idea they were coming. We we were not able to see it coming at all. And it's, it's very difficult. And so let me give you a practical example. When you're, if you're a person who is shepherding one of your parents, your elderly parents, you know, 
through the process of, of death. And um, you, you don't know what to expect. And so it's good to have friends, you know, perhaps uh, fellow church members or whatever, who have gone through that process. That, and, you know, everybody, I get it, has a different health profile. Everybody dies a bit differently. But, but to, to, to give you some indication of what you can expect going through that process is good and healthy. And we like that as human beings. And this, in, in our text today, Peter is getting us ready for what's coming. And I think, again, one of the reasons that I decided to preach 1 Peter now, I was going to go right into the book of Acts, and we will later, but one of the reasons I picked 1 Peter now is because I'm just looking around at what's going on in the culture, I'm looking around what's going on in, here in the United States and around the world, and I'm like, we need to get ready. We need to get ready to suffer for the name of Jesus. And so that's why we're doing this. And Peter really gives us a field manual for the Christian life and, and specifically in the area of suffering for Christ. So today we're going to talk about how to prepare for suffering. And so the big question in the text today is this, how should Christians be prepared to respond to suffering for the, for the cause of Jesus Christ? This passage, I think, breaks down very nicely into about four, four uh, ideas. And so let's get right into it. The first point, the first idea is this. We are to anticipate suffering and rejoice when it arrives. Now, it's easy for you to say, what? Who wants to anticipate and rejoice in suffering? And I'm just telling you what the text says. Let's, let's get into it. It says, beloved, verse 12, beloved. And so there, there's your clue that who Peter's intended audience is. Believers, you and me. Uh, believers, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, uh, there's a few things I want to share with you in this passage, but but I want, to pay, I want you to pay special attention to some words in uh, beginning in verse 12. The word fiery, the word test in the ESV, and the word uh, and the phrase in the end of verse 13, when his glory is revealed. I think that Peter and many other scholars agree that Peter is making an allusion here to something. And I'm going to share that with you in a minute. But before we do that, let's, get it, let's just break down the text a little bit. Here's the reality of the situation, and I think it's good for us to look at this from a big picture reality standpoint. The world, the unbelieving world, is traveling down a road, and the road they're traveling down is the road of the gratification of the flesh, right? Amen. Uh, whatever feels good, whatever seems good to the world, that's the road that the world is traveling down, and they're going, they're going at it. They're heading that direction. And so there's a few of us that are aligning ourselves with Jesus. He did not live for the gratification of his flesh. He lived a life that was pleasing to God and, in fact, a sacrificial life, dying on the cross to pay the penalty for sins he did not commit. Jesus' life was countercultural. It was even countercultural to the Jewish religious leaders of his day, be they 
the ultra-conservative or, or legalistic pharisaical bunch, or the liberal in power runs the synagogue Sadducee bunch. He was countercultural to the Roman Empire as well. He was countercultural. And so there's a group of us that are fighting against the flow of the culture towards Christ likeness. And that, that process of growing and changing and becoming more like Christ is going to be a fight. And so we, we have to kind of take a big picture look at the battle that we're in, right? Ephesians 6.12 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our enemy is not people, right? But our enemy is the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Yes, that's the battle that we're in. We're in, the, we're in a battle of, an epic battle, by the way, of good versus evil. And if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, you're fighting against the flow of the, wor uh, the world, the flesh, the devil. And you're proceeding, you're fighting your way towards Christ's likeness. It's just good to understand that from a big picture standpoint. What Peter's basically saying is, this should not surprise you. Look at the, you're in this epic battle of good versus evil. And so when hard things happen, because you call yourself a follower of Jesus and you attempt to actually live that out, there's gonna be suffering. Don't be surprised at it. If you, look at a historical, if you look at it from a historical standpoint, you can go no further than Fox's Book of Martyrs. And you can read about all these historical folks who tried to live for Jesus and the culture they existed in, and they were beheaded. They were crucified upside down. They were lit on fire, burned at the stake, and many other torturous ways of death. Some people had their, they were killed and then they had their, you know, bones exhumed and then they were burned and sacrilegious things done to them, insulting things. And so we need to understand that the evil that we're fighting against is not gonna go quietly. We are in the minority position. We are on the narrow road. And this evil that we're fighting, it exists in society, yes. It exists in our family, yes. It exists in us. We're doing battle with the evil that even we, the, the evil thoughts that we think and the evil that we practice in our own lives. It's an epic battle. It's there. It's lurking. And you can, we can feel the weight of it every single day. We are in an epic battle. So we should not be surprised when there's going to be suffering because we're going against the flow. So how do we actively prepare? How do we actively prepare for suffering? Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna suggest three ways uh, that, are, that are in this text, I believe. First is we need to recognize that, it is a, that suffering is inevitable as followers of Jesus Christ. In other words, John 15, 20, Jesus said this, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, he's talking about himself, Jesus, they will also persecute you. We are growing and changing and becoming more like Christ. And as we are fighting against the flow of the culture towards Christ's likeness, we have to understand that what he endured is what we are going to endure. 
It's just good for us to know that, to understand that. We've just got to get it in our mind. Part of being a Christian is we are going to be treated the way Christ was. The second thing is, uh, the second thing is understand that the victory is already secured. So it says in verse 13, it says, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Jesus is coming in glory. What we have to understand, in other words, is that the, the second thing you need to understand is that the victory, this, this epic battle that we're in of good versus evil, of God versus all the, the forces of evil and darkness, the victory is already secured. The victory is already there. We haven't realized the fruit of it yet, but the victory has already taken place. In other words, we have to understand Christians are on the winning side. Take your Bibles and turn to a very vivid illustration of this in Revelation chapter 19. One of the most amazing passages of scripture in John's revelation. God gives him a vision and this is what he sees. This is what's coming. This is a picture of victory. Romans chapter, sorry, Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. So again, this is John having a vision of things that are to come. Then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. Recognize that person yet? And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. I only know one person who can do that. His eyes are like flames of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that, it, that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white, and pure, we're, we're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the Almighty, of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has written, his, has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and behold, with a loud voice, he called out to all the birds that fly directly overhead. And this is kind of gross. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all the men, both free and slave, both great, both small and great. This is God calling his shot before the battle has begun. Hey, birds, gather up. There's a meal coming. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in, his, in, in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And get this, the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Get this picture in your mind, folks. <clears throat> Jesus coming on a white horse, his name is, is, is 
king of kings and lord of lords, and he's coming, galloping on this horse. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. He's got the armies arrayed behind him, all in fine linen on horses, riding at full speed towards the, the armies of all of the armies of evil and, and, and the forces of darkness arrayed against him. And does Jesus need his army? That army is probably there to display his glory. But he wipes them all out without any help. The victory's won. Sin and death have been defeated. What we're experiencing now on the earth is a time of God's mercy where he is, has, has opened the door of salvation for all folks who will call upon the name of the Lord, all people who will turn away from their sin and turn toward Jesus to come to him. What we're experiencing now is God's grace. But one of these days, God is going to close that door. He's going to come again and he's going, this battle, this epic battle is gonna reach its conclusion and he will defeat in the flesh what he's already defeated in the spirit realm sin, and death. You're on that team. Unlike yesterday, your team cannot be beaten. I'm, just, I'm not trying to rub salt in a wound. I'm just telling you what's true. That is a source for me of tremendous, tremendous encouragement and boldness. The third thing that you need, the first thing you need to know is how to actively prepare is to recognize that suffering is inevitable as followers of Jesus Christ. The second thing to remember is that we're on the winning side. And the third thing to remember is this, insults point to your status as one of his. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. What? If I'm insulted, I'm blessed. I don't like to be insulted. But here's the thing, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you're living your life, if you're going against the flow of the culture and you're, you're living and, and moving towards Christ-likeness, you're growing and changing and becoming more like him every day, and you are insulted for that, you can be sure that you're doing it right. Right? That people are looking at your life and they're associating you with Jesus and they don't like the way that Jesus lived because they want to live according to their flesh the desires and gratification of their flesh, and so they are insulting you for it. It's a source of rejoicing. Now, I wanna, I wanna go back and circle back and get back to these words that I pointed to you earlier in this text. The word fiery, the word test, and the, and the phrase at the end of verse 13, when his glory is revealed. Some people, some scholars believe that Peter was making an allusion here and the illusion that he was making, and I don't think it's a bad argument, the illusion that he was making or likely making was the illusion to re the refining of gold. Fiery trial to test you. And then at the end it says, when his glory is revealed. Here's, here's, here's what is thought about this passage. If you know anything about the refining of gold, you go and you, you mine gold ore or whatever out of the earth. And, and when you mine it out of the earth, it's filled with impurities and it's, it's got dirt and dust and debris and all kinds of junk. And so what you gotta do is you gotta take that gold ore or whatever you've mined out of the earth and you gotta put it in a cauldron and you gotta heat it up. You gotta build a fire underneath it, right? You gotta heat it up. 
And when you get it to a certain level, the gold will melt. And gold is very heavy, very dense, and it will go down to the bottom, and the impurities will rise to the top. And then you take and you skim off the impurities. You, you remove the dross. Are you done yet? You're not. If you know anything about refining gold, you know that hidden within that gold is still more impurities that will only come out with more heat. So you gotta increase the fire. You gotta turn up the temperature. And as you increase the temperature, more of the impurities rise up to the top of that gold and you skim off the dross, you remove the impurities once again. Are you done yet? One more time, you've gotta increase the heat because there are still yet more impurities in that gold. And you continue this process until that last time when you remove that dross and what you're left with is pure gold, you look down and you see your reflection, like a mirror. And so the thinking is, is that what Peter is saying in this passage is this, is that when those fiery trials come into our lives to test us, this is our opportunity to grow. This is our opportunity to say no to sin. In other words, to remove the impurities and the dross from our lives, the things that don't matter, the things that are temporary, the things that are sinful, to get those things out of our lives. And as God increases in his sovereignty, as God increases the heat in our lives and he, as, the, as the trial intensifies in its heat, so to speak, that one day, there's gonna come a time when he's going to remove those impurities to the point that what is left in our lives is the image of, not us, Jesus Christ. That's when his glory is revealed. It's an amazing thought. And uh, someday when I get to heaven, I talk to Peter, I'll see if it's true that that's what he intended when he wrote this passage. But it does, it does give us some things to chew on, right? As we think about trials and their usefulness in our lives as we proceed towards Christ's likeness. All right, the second thing that we see in this text is this. Verse 15, we are to resist practicing evil. Look at what it says. But let none of you suffer as a murder, murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Those are all bad things, right? Let's admit it, folks. When somebody brings, when, when a human being brings suffering into our lives in a sinful way, you know, they, they, they bring some sort of suffering into our lives, our natural reaction will be to retaliate. At this church, we always, I always teach the four rules of communication from Ephesians 4. You're probably familiar with them. You might get sick of hearing them. I have them on the lock screen on my phone so that I'm constantly reminded of them because they're so practical. Rule number, Ephesians 4, rule, rule one, be honest. Rule number two, keep current. You know, deal with today's problems today. Rule number three, attack the problem, not the person. This is not a place where we call names, but a, a place where we call sin, sin. He attacked the problem, not the person. And then the fourth rule is what I want to call your attention to today. The fourth rule of communication is act, don't react. Act, that's the positive thing, don't react, don't do that. And if we look at Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 32, we see these words. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. In this context... Anger, which can be, anger can be righteous anger. If you're mad about what God's mad about, it could be righteous anger. But anger is oftentimes sinful anger. 
when we're mad about us not getting our way, that could be unrighteous anger. And in this context, because it's surrounded by other sinful things like bitterness and wrath and clamor and slander, we know that this text is referring to sinful anger. So let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Instead, we are to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Here's what I think Paul was talking about in Ephesians 4. When we go to the doctor's office and the guy hits us on the knee with the mallet our, and our, knee kick, our leg kicks out, that's our natural reflex. It's the way God wired the body. It's a good thing. But in our flesh, oftentimes when bad things happen to us or we perceive that someone is coming after us to slide us or to be mean or nasty to us, what naturally comes out of our flesh is bitterness and wrath and anger, basically all of verse 31. That's our natural reaction in the flesh. What Paul is saying, and I think what Peter is, is reiterating, is that we are to, under the power of the Holy Spirit, as we are growing and changing and becoming more like Christ, we are to instead respond to these things with verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So we need not practice, we need to resist practicing evil when we're going through suffering. Why? A couple different reasons. Number one is uh, oftentimes this will inspire thoughts of hypocrisy. In other words, I don't know if you've picked up on this yet, but the world around us tends to view Christians not by what we say we are, but by what we do. It's a powerful witness, but could also be a negative witness, you know, if we're tempted to retaliate with practicing evil. And so if we say we love God and we say we love others and we say that our goal in life is to make followers of Jesus Christ, because that is our goal, and we respond to evil with evil, then people will think that we're pretenders, that we're not genuine that we don't really believe what we say we believe. And so we need to resist when suffering comes because of the name of Jesus, we need to resist practicing evil. The second thing that I would just say is this, is that we need to try to, resi try to resist doing God's business man's way. God has put us here for a reason. We've talked about that. And we, he's given us in his word the way that we're supposed to do this and the way that we do this is to not return evil for evil, but to return evil for good, overcome evil with good. So God knows. He knows, he absolutely knows that as his people resist evil and practice good, the reaction by the surrounding world will be pronounced. And that, that reaction could even become slanderous or violent. God knows that. He knows. Don't, don't have to worry about it. He knows that this is, this is true. However, God does not give us permission. He does not give permission for his people to react against evil by practicing more evil. So let's not be tempted to do God's business man's way. The third point this morning is found in verses 16 to 18. <clears throat> It's this, don't receive suffering with shame, but wear it as a badge of honor. 
Look at verse 16 to 18. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him, be, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And, quote from Proverbs, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinner? A few things to say on this before we move on. First of all, uh, First of all, we have to think about Acts 5.41 and other passages like it. Acts 5.41, where the apostles were preaching the name of Christ, the, the city did not like that. The officials, the religious leaders gathered and said, stop it, get out of here. They tried all kinds of things to get them to shut up and move on. They beat them, they put them in jail. Eventually, they released them on their way and they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now, we gotta be careful here, folks, because the very last verse that we studied said, don't suffer for doing evil. Don't go out there and say, well, yeah, that guy hit me, so I beat the fire out of him, and uh, woo-hoo, I'm suffering for Jesus by going to jail for that. No, we are to be doing good. And as we are doing good and practicing these things and we are shamed for that, we can wear that as a badge of honor as the apostles did. We also need to understand that the day of vindication is coming. Judgment is coming. It talks a little bit about judgment in this, in this passage. And, uh, you know, I, I find it interesting that Peter quoted from the Proverbs. Proverbs is a book of wisdom, how to live skillfully in this life. And so Peter is just reminding them, hey, live skillfully in this life. Don't live like the ungodly and the sinners. Live a life of righteousness. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And then finally, this is the understanding that more people need to hear about Jesus and, and, and see examples of godly living. Where do we, where do we go to practice? You know, listen, my, my daughter, uh, Ellie, my youngest, she plays volleyball here at DCS. She plays basketball here at DCS. And down the hallway here is a place that she goes to to practice. It's called the gym, the gymnasium. Don't, not to be conf confused with Jim Tainer, okay? She goes to the gym. And there, amongst her teammates, she prepares for going and playing other teams. Think about that for a minute. Where do we go? Where do you and I go as Christians to prepare to go out there and live for Christ? We do that here. We do that here. We do it in how we treat one another and how we love one another and how we sacrifice for one another. And, and brothers and sisters, how we do that with each other is a powerful witness. And so there's this phrase, there's this phrase in this text I wanna to bring to your attention. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. You've got to ask yourself the question, what does that mean? 
in this context of, of suffering for Christ and whatever, what does that mean? Well, let me, let me do my best to articulate what I think it means. Church is not a place. Uh, let me back up. Let me back up to the gym analogy for my daughter, basketball, volleyball. It's volleyball season. Our coach is Coach Boggs. What if every day when, when Ellie goes to practice, I say, uh, Ellie, how was practice? She says, you know what? It was easy. Coach, we never had to break a sweat. Uh, she just told us everything we're doing is right. We have nothing to change. And, and we're perfect. And, and she's just really anticipating the victory that we're gonna experience when we go out and play Shekinah, one of our rivals. Now, if that was the experience that my daughter had at practice, how would we do against our rivals? <laughs> Crushed. No, she goes down to the gym, she comes home, she's flat, she's flushed. She's all hot and sweaty. And I say, how did, oh, coach says I need to work on this and coach says I need to work on that and coach also said I need to work on this over here. So I better get cracking, man. I, I, I really wanna work uh, for the team so that we can have victory, you know, when we play Shekinah or whoever. And folks, we gotta be careful that the church doesn't become like the easy coach where we all just come in and we just hear what we wanna hear. Oh, you're fine, everything's fine. Everything's good and great and you don't need to work on a thing. May it never be. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. We've got to love each other well enough that we can, in the right context, this is why you need to, you need to be in relationships with other, if you're a man, you know, other men or people, whatever, women, women, people, you need to be in relationships that are deep enough and intimate enough within the church for somebody to be able to feel comfortable to call you out on your sin and for you to call them out on their sin. We're in training here, folks, that we are, we are fighting against the forces of evil, the principles and powers of darkness as we proceed to Christ-likeness. And that is no easy task, amen? amen? It's not an easy task. And so think about this room or this church or whatever, maybe not this room, but think about, our, our, think about us as we're workout buddies, right? We're workout buddies and we are, we are working to show each other where we are deficient and where we are solid and, and to encourage that which is solid to get better and, and encourage that which is deficient to change so that we can be more like Christ and that we can grow and change, be more like him so that we can put out to the world an example of what true Christians look like. It'd be one of the most powerful witnesses that we possess. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey God? Anyway, we gotta get angry at sin and its effects that it has on each other. People talk about church discipline and church discipline is, is often misunderstood and it's often misapplied. Uh, Matthew 18, verse 15 and following. Church discipline is simply a loving, church, here's the recap. Church discipline is uh, if your brother sins against you, go to him, just you and him, work it out. If, if you get it all settled, then it's good. Nobody else needs to know. 
But if that doesn't work, maybe take two or three others. Confront them in their sin. Try to help them grow and change. If that doesn't work, tell the church. I think there's a very careful way, a right way to tell the church when something like that's going on. And if, if, the, if they don't even respond to the church, then treat them like an unbeliever. It doesn't say they are unbelievers. It says that we're gonna treat them as unbelievers and we're gonna share the gospel with them and try to you know, bring them back to repentance and faith. It's one of the most, if practiced well, it's one of the most loving things we can do for each other. But it gets a bad rap. Some people use it as a verb. I got Matthew 18'd. Got Matthew 18 right out of the church. That's how we got to love each other. All right, finally. Keep doing good and trusting God through the suffering. Verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. A couple of verses to share with you uh, before I wrap up. Uh, Proverbs 3, 5, trust in, the Lord your, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Our own understanding may inform us as, as we're co- fighting against the cultural flow, and maybe as we're even getting pushed back a bit as we fight against the cultural flow, the, 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 our own understanding might tell us, you know what, it's just time to give up and give in and just get swept down the stream. Or, or shut up and just, uh, just try to get over to the side and get out on the bank and just watch from the sidelines right? The counterintuitive thing that Peter tells us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is when the suffering comes, when you are being purified as fine gold, when things get difficult, even to, maybe even to the point of, of slander or physical violence or death, keep trusting God, keep doing good. That's scary. That's scary. But we are to trust in him with all of our heart. Remember, I just got to keep saying this because I love it so much. We're in the ultimate win-win situation. If we die today, we're with Jesus. Everything's good. We're with him. If we get to live through the day, fruitful service to him. Those are our options. We've got to pay homage in our lives to the one who put us in that win-win situation. And that person is Jesus Christ. The second thing that we see is, uh, just want to bring to your attention is from the book of Joshua 1.9, where God spoke to Joshua, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We just got to keep this in mind, folks is that when we're in the most tense situation we've ever, the scariest situation we've ever been in, when, when somebody is saying, listen, you need to recant your faith and give your allegiance over to this other thing or die, we have to understand that even in that moment, as bad as they, that may be, even in that moment, Joshua 1.9, the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. How do we prepare for suffering? When that suffering comes in the name of Jesus, here it is. Christians can prepare for suffering by learning to anticipate it. It's gonna happen. It's just good to know that. It's gonna happen. Learning how to view it. This is a process that God is using 
to not just refine us and make us into the image of Christ, but he's also using it as a powerful witness against a lost world, to a lost world. So how to view suffering and learning what actions to take in the midst of it. Don't react to evil with evil, but instead keep trusting God and doing good. Pretty simple. So here's some possible applications. I say possible because if the Lord has already laid on your heart something you need to do, then you need to do that. But if, if that hasn't happened, here's some things to think about. How does your life need to be reconfigured in anticipation of suffering? I, I mean, let's just be honest. This past week, we got a whole bunch of people that are uh, potentially gonna lose their jobs because the government made a mandate. And that's just about a healthcare issue. What happens when mandates are made regarding, uh, you know, you can't go to church or you're going to lose your job. You can't be a Christian or whatever. And so by reconfigure, there's a whole bunch of different, maybe you need to live a simpler life and, and be less dependent on money. Maybe you need to reconfigure your life in such, a, in such a way because you don't currently have built into your schedule a time with the Lord, a time to connect with him, to read his word and to pray to him so that you can strengthen yourself for what's ahead. How does your life need to be reconfigured? Second thing I would say is meditate on Acts 5.41 because perhaps you're thinking that uh, when suffering comes, I'll just kind of lay low. In other words, maybe you need to reconfigure your thinking about suffering for Christ and, and you need to reconfigure it the way the apostles configured their thinking to think, oh, I'm suffering for Christ. What an honor. What a privilege that I am being bestowed with by my God to suffer directly for the name of Jesus right now. So maybe we need to change our thinking. Or maybe you do. And then finally, how can you build more trust in God in preparing for what's to come? I can give you book titles, but there's all different kinds of ways that you might do that, right? For some of you, that might be you build your trust in God by attempting some things for God and then watching him work through your life like sharing Christ with your coworker or your family member. You get the idea. I believe that suffering for Christ is going to be a reality uh, in my lifetime in the United States. We need to get ready. Father, we thank you for this time and this practical guidance that you've given us in your word. Please now help us to incorporate these things into our lives as we daily resist the flow or resist the temptation to get on board with the flow of evil and darkness in this world. Lord, you've given us your example. The example that you've given us is not a person who lives for self, but someone who is selfless. The example that you've given us is not a person who collected uh, medals for their accomplishments, but instead worked for the benefit of others. 
Father, you did not give us an example of someone who tried to save his own life under his own power, but someone who voluntarily laid down his life because of his power for our benefit. Father, I pray that the example of Christ would just be in our minds all the time and would guide and inform the decisions and the initiatives that we make, that we take in this world. I ask this in Jesus' powerful name, the only one that can save, Jesus the Christ, amen.